grab my podium. So um, Katie Lamas is the one who gave those announcements. And Katie, your segue to the giving opportunity was amazing. I was like, if that's how good the message is, just to introduce the giving, what's the expectation for this? So I feel a little bit under the pile. That was amazing. I should have been taking notes. You normally don't take notes and announcements, but it was just that good. So thanks for that, Katie. You guys, it's so good to be here. I literally have not spoken to a live audience in half a year. So this is my first opportunity to do this. And what a great day. It's beautiful. It's nice and sunny. Got a little white noise in the background. So, you know, this is, this is perfect. So, yes, as James uh, introduced me, I do work with CREW. Campus Crusade for Christ International is the organization that is over all that we do around the world. And the campus ministry, the college and high school ministries are just a small part of that. Actually, we have um, Josh McDowell. You might have heard of that guy. That's, he's part of CREW. We have a military ministry. We have athletic ministry, Athletes in Action. We have a family ministry. Um, we have a lot of different ministries that are under that umbrella. And it's been kind of fun to be on staff with crew because you get to intersect with these different ministries. One of the ministries that I've had the chance to intersect with for a long time has been the, the family ministry or family life. And they, they do these conferences called a Weekend to Remember. And I went to my first Weekend to Remember um, which is awesome, but you're not really married. So sometimes what they're talking about, you're like, that'd be nice to be able to do, but we're not going to be able to do that yet. So there's that. That was a little awkward, but they try to keep you away from some of those messages. You know, the dating people go off in their own little sad room. Um, and then, and then when we first got married, we went to another weekend to remember. So that was cool. And then we started having kids. And so we don't remember any of our weekends after we started having kids. So we had these kids, and they got into college, and we thought, you know, it'd be kind of fun to do a weekend to remember. And our faculty ministry at Cal Poly works with professors. They were going to do one as professors, and I thought, well, let's just go on that thing. So we went to this weekend to remember. This is probably about, I don't know, three or four years ago. And it was pretty, you know, it's typical stuff, talking about oneness and unity and communication and all this stuff. And then the last morning, what they did, and they typically do this, is they break off the men from the women so they can kind of just talk straight about men's stuff and women's stuff. And I was in the men's one, and the guy was talking a lot about being a parent. And so it, so they must have done one for men that weren't parents. So this one was specifically for parents. And he's talking about um, being a good dad and all the qualities of a good father. And then towards the end, he starts getting into this, um, started talking about how he's coached his kids' sports. And he talked about coaching his son's sports and coaching his daughter's sports and starts sharing all these amazing memories from being a coach of his kids' teams. And as he wraps up, he says, and that's the most important thing. That's the most important thing I did is I coached. My kids' sports. And here I was, uh, a, a dad who, and I left that meeting, and what they had us do is come together, husbands, wives, mother, father, to talk about what we heard. 
And in that meeting, just hanging out with my wife in the middle of an atrium, in the middle of this big hotel, I just broke down in tears. I was just sobbing because I had not done what this man considered to be one of the most important things you can do as a father. And as I was sitting there sobbing, my wife was just kind of patiently waiting. And then when she found the right moment, she said this. She goes, first of all, kids don't want their parents to be their coaches. I was like, that's really true. (laughs) Parents want it more than the kids do. And then she said... You need to stop reading John Piper devotionals, and you need to start reading the Psalms. Now, what did she mean by that? Well, my wife knows me, and I have a history of shooting all over myself. I tell myself I should be a better husband. I should be a better parent. I should be a better leader. I should be a better communicator. I have this habit of just criticizing and critiquing myself, shooting all over myself. And she knew that there I was. It was happening right then, especially as being a father, and then I was going through some other things. So it really wasn't about John Piper, but those devotionals were shooting all over me even more. And so what happened then is I stopped reading the John Piper devotionals, And I started to read the Psalms. And that season for me, which really isn't that long ago, became one of the most transformative seasons for me as I started to approach my devotional life or my quiet time, whatever you want to call it. I started to approach it totally differently. And the Psalms were a key, key part of that. So I know you guys are going through the Psalms, of course, that's why I'm here. I'm, I think, wrapping up. I have the last section of Psalms, 142 through 150, and I'm going to be focusing on just one of those Psalms, Psalm 142. And I suppose the big caveat is you've heard a lot about the Psalms already, and the Psalms have some repetitive ideas and themes and things like that. So no doubt I'm probably going to say something you've already heard. I talked with Brian about that. He's like, well, that's okay. And it is okay. I mean, even the scripture says we need to be reminded of the things we've heard before. So you might be hearing some things you've already heard, but I also think I might have a fresh take. So hopefully there's something new for us this morning. Okay, well, let me, let me read Psalm 142 for us, and I'm going to be reading the NIV version, <clears throat> and then we're gonna, we'll talk about it a little bit, and I'll talk a little bit about the Psalms in general. So this is David, is the psalmist in this case. He says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. So I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see. There is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion. In the land of the living. 
Listen to my cry, for I am desperate in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Why did my wife recommend the Psalms in particular for somebody who is in this rut of continuing to pile more to-dos, more oughts, um, and more shoulds? And one of the reasons for that is the nature of the Psalms is that they're descriptive texts. They're not prescriptive texts. In other words, it's just a psalmist telling us how he's feeling, and basically we're just listening in on how he's telling God how he feels, and he's just describing the way things are. It's not, there aren't the texts we look to, to to determine what we ought to do. They're not prescriptive. They don't should all over us. And if you're uncomfortable with me saying that, that'll be the last time. Um, so they're, 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 they're these raw, authentic texts that are just on the person is on display how they are, not saying this is what we ought to do. And it was exactly what I needed just for that reason alone. Now, the, these texts are also very poetic, right? And so if it's a poetic genre of the Bible, and the Bible is made up of all kinds of genres of books, right? You have history, you have prophetic, you have law, you have the Gospels, and we got these poetry books and if they're poetry, then they're using devices like imagery, metaphor, simile, hyperbole, all these non-literal devices in order to help emote and e- e- kind of evoke our own emotions. So they're emotional texts, right? That's why they're, that's the part, that's part of the reason we sing worship. It's to tap into our emotions. It's why we read poetry. It's why we're exposed to the arts because it taps into something emotional, so they're not really the place where we go primarily for theological instruction. It's not really where we go to learn how we ought to do church. But they are so beneficial because they evoke our emotions. And in many ways, they give us permission to be emotional, to be real, to be raw with God. Now, there are different psalms. There's psalms of lament and praise and thanksgiving, celebration. There's per- prophetic psalms, there's royal psalms that talk about the Messiah. My personal favorite, though, are these lamenty, whiny, angsty, angry songs. I love those psalms because those who know me have heard me say this before. I'm pretty convinced I have a 16-year-old emo kid trapped inside of me, okay? I am a very emo kind of person. I love that kind of music. I get all moody and broody. Um, I've also got kind of an angry, angsty side, and so I love early punk rock music, Social Distortion. I love that band, and a lot of Smashing Pumpkins. We get a little bit of the anger and the angst. You know, I like I like those kind of bands. In fact, I was very disappointed with Christian music for a long time because it just wasn't raw and authentic. It wasn't angry enough for me. Like I need something that's gonna gonna help me express those things. Um, in fact, one birthday weekend. This kind of describes kind of who I am in two, two events. We went and saw Social Distortion one night. And then after that, we went and saw this really kind of mellow, um, kind of romantic, 
like a, a chick flick, basically, but I like those kind of movies. And so, like, well, that's just who I am. I'm kind of all over the place. Um, and my, we actually joke sometimes at those marriage conferences. Gretchen's like, you should go to the women's thing, and I'll go to the men's thing, because I think we're kind of switched. She, like, w- loves to watch sports. She's very straightforward in her communication, right? Like you kind of heard earlier. Anyway, so as you look at this psalm, right, you see David being basically a 16-year-old emo kid. He's just being all angsty and honest and raw and emotional. Talks about how he cries aloud. He pours out his complaint in verse 2. Verse 3, he says, my spirit has grown faint. And I love verse 3. No one is at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. No one cares for my life. Now, if you've ever raised a teenage daughter or an emo kid like me, they say stuff like that. Nobody cares. Nobody loves me. And I love the Psalms because it is a little bit of hyperbole. And he was in desperate situation. But it's hyperbole, right? He's just, but he's just saying, I, I'm just, this is how I am. I'm undone. He's laying it all out in front of us. And he's laying it all out in front of God. He's giving us permission to be real with God, to be whiny, to be angry, to be angsty, to be who we really are. When I first started to do my devotional differently, when I put the version John Piper devotional thing aside, and I just came before the Lord, it, w- it was interesting. Um, honestly, I was pretty done at that point with the whole quiet time thing. I was tired of it. I was burned out on it. I was worn out from it. And I was going through what some have called a dark night of the soul, where God just seemed distant. I didn't think he cared anymore, and I know I didn't care, at least as much as I should. And so there I was before the Lord, and in fact, I wasn't even reading Psalms for a while. <laughs> I was just like, all right, well, I'm, I'm here. And it was in that time of complete, in a sense, honesty, just being where I was at and being who I was in the moment where it happened where I experienced something in my devotional life I had not yet experienced, at least on this level, where I clearly heard the voice of the Lord speaking to my soul, saying, that's okay. That's all right. And I experienced grace because I came to the Lord and I didn't do anything. I didn't pray I didn't read my Bible. I didn't memorize a verse. I didn't write down in my journal something I needed to do. I didn't think about what I was going to try to do that day to be more Christ-like. I didn't do anything. And the Lord said, that's okay. And for somebody who comes to their quiet time looking how they can be better and seeing how they're not being good enough or doing enough, I can't tell you how powerful it was for the Lord to say, you are enough. You don't, you don't need to do anything else. 
to earn my love. We Christians love to talk about the love of God. We love to talk about his unconditional love, right? The idea that he loves us no matter what. In fact, usually that's how we come to faith because we learn about this love of God and we're so drawn to that and we know our sin. We know that we're a mess and we're like, this is the best thing in the world that the God of the universe would declare me worthy of his love and love me in spite of my condition. The problem is, I think, though that happens when we first come to Christ, I think we forget all the time God's unconditional love. If, if you're like me, I will be in my quiet time and I'll be just condemned or feel really judged by not being pure enough or holy enough or not being whatever enough. And I, I leave that time sometimes feeling guilty and shameful. Now, there's a place for conviction, no doubt. But we have to remember that if we're leaving that time with the Lord feeling guilty and shameful and feeling like we're not enough, we do not understand the unconditional love of God. And so for me to come before the Lord and do nothing was the profound way for me to understand he loves me unconditionally. There's a, there's a story in the Bible about um, Mary and Martha. I'm sure some of you have heard this story. And Martha invites Jesus into the house. And Mary is the one that kind of does all the work to get all the things prepared. And then Martha just sort of hangs out with Jesus, right? And Mary gets all mad about, or Martha gets all mad about the fact that Mary's not doing anything. And so says, Lord, Mary's not helping me do anything. What's the problem here? And Jesus says some super profound stuff. Luke, the author of the gospel, first says that Martha was distracted with much serving. Distracted with much serving. I'm like, okay, that's me. I think I can do so much serving that I sort of forget about Jesus in the midst of all the serving. And then Jesus, having more insight than Luke, being able to see into the heart of Martha, says she was worried and troubled about many things. And I think we as believers can so much get caught in the doing and the serving. And that's on the outside. And the inside, we're all worried and troubled about all kinds of things, often about our own walk with the Lord and how we're doing, Jesus then says, look, Mary chose the best thing. Mary chose the one thing that is needed. And that was simply to sit at the feet of Jesus and do nothing. Just be in his presence. And just soak up who he is. And not worry about doing all that stuff. In the Psalms, there is a word that I think describes that. The not doing anything. 
It's a little bit of a mysterious word. We're not exactly sure what it means, and I bet you guys have already talked about this, but the word is salah. And they think it's a, a musical term that means interlude or pause. It can mean rest. I, I didn't study music, but I know there's rests in music, right? It's kind of like that. It's this point in the writing of the psalm where you just stop and do nothing. And I think that's what we need to do. If you think about the description of instruction of Jesus to Mary and Martha, and if you think about how we get so caught up in all the doing and the oughts and the shoulds, we need to work into our regular rhythm of walking with Jesus some salah, some rest, some pause. And this is actually kind of popular right now, actually. Not in the spirit, not in the Christian sense necessarily, but if you're in the checkout aisle, you can see magazines and it talks about meditation and it talks about uh, mindfulness and it talks about all these things that makes it seem like it's this new thing. Um, actually, silence and solitude, meditations as old as the Old Testament. It's been around quite a long time. And yet it's a really popular practice right now, probably because our world is crazy and it's hurried and it's super stressful right now. And we need a time to, to get away from the world, to get away from the chaos. We need some space to just stop and to rest. <clears throat> but I want to I remind you that the solitude that I'm talking about here, the, the pausing or the resting is is more than just getting away from it all. It's it's more than just time for yourself with your own thoughts. It's more than just recharging your batteries. It's more than finding a place where you're not bothered by people. Solitude is not about being alone. It's about being alone with God. And that's what Jesus was saying. Like Mary wasn't just avoiding the work. She was with him. So when we talk about solitude and silence, it's not about, oh, I just got to create some space to get away. It's allowing yourself space to actually be with God and just sit at his feet. We have some saints in our Christian tradition who really took this seriously. They're known as the desert fathers and the desert mothers. Um, fourth, fifth century, went into the deserts of Egypt and spent years and years and years in silence and solitude. And one of them named Theophan the Recluse, which that is a cool name. I'm pretty sure people think I'm Jamie the Recluse sometimes. Turns out I'm really good at shelter in place, by the way. This is what he says. He says, to pray is to descend with the mind into the heart to descend with the mind into the heart and there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever-present, all-seeing, within you. To stand before the Lord, ever-present, all-seeing, within you. I think we're really good at inviting Jesus into our hearts and then we sort of forget that he's there. <laughs> we start waiting for his return 
and we start looking for you know other things to do, and we just forget that, yeah, you invited him in his heart. He actually hasn't left yet. I know it's a little bit of a mystery that he's here until the end of the age, which he tells us in the Great Commission, and yet he's coming back. So it's kind of a weird thing, but his spirit is with us. The very presence of the Lord is with us, and we need to sit so we can descend from all the chaos in our heads and be present with the Lord who is in our hearts. We need to practice Salah. Now, let me just give you some pra- a practical way that I've been doing this. It goes by different names. Often it's called centering prayer, but it doesn't really matter what you call it. I'll, I'll describe one way that I've been practicing Salah, practicing sitting at the feet of Jesus, practicing coming from my head down to my heart. And it's really quite simple. What I do is, is I have a space that I try to go to every morning that is comfortable, familiar. It's kind of become a bit of a sanctuary for me. It's just a couch, but it's still a sanctuary. And I get myself comfortable, try to like notice that there's any tension in my neck or shoulders or my jaw. I clench my jaw a lot. My hands will be clenched sometimes, and I just kind of rest, right, Salah, in the presence of God. And then I don't do anything. I literally just sit there in his presence. Now, if you've ever tried to do this, it's actually harder than it sounds. Because our mind wants to keep doing. We start thinking about our shopping lists and our to-do lists. Or we start stressing about the conversation we need to have with a friend. We start rehearsing that conversation. We start, our mind starts going in a million different directions, right? So sitting at the feet of Jesus and doing nothing is actually quite challenging. So the, the way that I've discovered, and this is through these dudes that lived in the desert and through some other contemplatives, is you can focus on your breathing, so that helps center you. But the most effective thing is just to choose a word like peace or love or joy or maybe a short phrase like lord have mercy and what that simple word or simple phrase does is it allows you to focus on something otherwise your mind just goes in a million directions and i just will sit there and when i start to get distracted i just say the word peace peace is my go-to And I sit in the presence of God and just enjoy being with him, doing nothing. And and you know how it is. Like your mind, it's so easy to get distracted. There's like a million things. And this has really helped me just experience the Lord, not having to figure anything out or pray for anybody or fix anything in my life, but just to enjoy his presence. And I want to tell you, it's sort of a mystery, but it's been absolutely transformative. And in some ways, it doesn't make sense how transformative it's really been. Because I want to do better. (laughs) I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better leader. I want to be like Christ. But I've found if I'm just deciding to do that and then trying all day to make it happen, it doesn't work very well. 
yeah, I need to make an effort, but the effort alone isn't transformation. What I've found is as I sit in the presence of the Lord, there's a transformation that takes place. And if we had another sermon or two, we could talk about the ins and outs of how that works. But here's how I think it works at its very base. When I'm sitting there before the Lord, being raw, honest, angry, angsty, upset at people, lustful, and the Lord convinces me that I'm enough. When I can sit there with the worst of who I am, and the Lord convinces me that I am his beloved, that love is transformative. It allows me to operate in the world without worrying about earning people's love or impressing people or being good enough. When I'm secure in his love, and it's taken me being with him in those raw moments to really get the depth of that, it's transformative. The other thing that happens is as I see my own sin and God's love and forgiveness for it, I then start to more easily extend that same love and forgiveness towards others. It's been transformative. Situations where I'd get angry at my wife or frustrated without trying, without thinking ahead of time, okay, I'm going to have this conversation, don't be a jerk, you know, be patient. You know, it's the moments when you're, you can't prep for it, it just happens. I've been more loving and gracious. And it, I believe it's from this mystical, transformative thing that happens when we sit before the Lord in his love as we really are. And he changes us. He changes the makeup of our soul. And it's unbelievable. Let me just, I'm just going to wrap up by praying for you guys. But I just encourage you, whether it's two minutes or 20 minutes, to sit and salah before the Lord and just be who you are and allow him to transform you. You can also do retreats and do multiple days. There's a lot of other ways to practice it, but let's start with two minutes if that's a good start for you or, or 20 or five or whatever. Well, Lord, it's true. You will never leave us nor forsake us. And we do look forward to your coming, but we thank you that you're here. And we thank you that your love does transform us. And it's not just understanding, oh, God loves me. It's not just understanding, oh, it's unconditional. But Lord, our knowledge of you, our intimacy with you is experiencing you, experiencing that love, which is different than just knowing about it. Lord, I thank you. Would we, would we stop and slow down and sit and experience that love, recognizing that that is the one thing that is the best thing. And Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your grace that you transform us, even often when we don't want it. You transform us in ways we're not even expecting. And Lord, thank you. Just thank you for your presence, for your love, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.